Welcome back to another episode of the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comero, as usual. And we are officially in the offseason at this point. We've done all the season recaps. We've done the scouting reports where I just totally nerded out on the big three for Duke as well as Marquise Bolden. Now what I wanted to do is kind of go a different route, a little 180 from uh, how I typically do these pods and have just conversations, kind of narratives. People think of narratives in a negative term a lot of times. What the negative term is more is is soft narratives, lazy narratives. Narratives, it's just what's going on. It's the stories behind it. And I like to do that with a lot of the NBA stuff. So some of these subjects you may have heard before. Some of these subjects may be brand new. But I like to believe, even if that may be a little egotistical, I can kind of speak about it in a little bit of a different way, at least in my own individual way. And I thought a great person to help me do that would be David Gardner. And if you recognize the name David Gardner, um, he is a writer for Bleacher Report. I first got to know his work through Sports Illustrated. But uh, one of the best sports-related articles, even though it goes way beyond sports I've read in the last year, was about uh, Bubba Derby. He is a minor league baseball player at the moment, if I am correct. If If he is in the big leagues now, please correct me. He was involved in uh, the Las Vegas shooting at a, at a country concert um, a while back, and David wrote about that from a perspective which is just, it's, 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 it hits. It hits. It's one of the most, it, it, I would highly recommend everyone read that if we please report about Bubba Derby. He's worked on videos. He did a video on Adam Morrison and kind of how Adam Morrison, he made it okay to show emotion even if, that was kind of looked at in a little bit of a different way at the time. R.J. Barrett, there was a video there with uh, uh, Steve Nash in it. Uh, you may have seen that, how R.J. was kind of learning how to re- – he was really being developed under Coach K. But also there was a lot of good info in that video on how Steve Nash, his godfather, was helping him out. And then the best part is I really I'll – be per- I'll be blunt. I don't watch football um, anymore, but – I will turn into the Super Bowl, and in one of the worst Super Bowls of all time, David Gardner, you, your live tweeting was one of the most epic performances I have ever seen, and it made that game worth it. So after that long-winded welcome, thank you so much for joining me, and let's kind of, not as much break down, but let's just kind of chat about the draft. I appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to be here, and thanks for all the compliments. I appreciate it. I uh hope that uh, anyone who listens to this and finds me uh, judges me more by my uh, stories than by my Twitter because I really don't put a ton of effort into my Twitter account, probably less than I should. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and I your put a work lot off of Twitter is absolutely yeah. stunning. The Twitter is more <laughs> just entertainment value. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, that Bubba Derby article. And, I Thanks, mean, the, the Bull Bull article right before the draft, that was interesting, especially with – where he got drafted, which we'll mention. But let's yeah, let's start off just in terms of let's start off on a lighthearted note, the entertainment value of this draft. I will say there was a lot of emotion, there was a lot of tears. I I, I was crying my heart out. It was like watching Pretty Woman with ice cream all, all, the whole time. It was just it, it was a lot of feels. And I we in ten years are we gonna go back and kind of look at this like the crying draft or as the Levitard show would say, the craft. 
Yeah, I think what's interesting is that this uh, younger players, this younger generation of players, they really are able to lean into their emotionality. And I think you've seen it with older players talking about mental health and all these kind of things, that there is more of a lane for this to be emotional and to really enjoy the fact that like, wow, what an honor to be one of the 60 best players in your class in the entire world and to be drafted. And like, if you're Zion Williamson being number one overall, like how many people have ever been that before? What an amazing thing, you know, just to be able to cry about that in public and not be made fun of for it. You touched on Adam Morrison, you know, crying after the UCLA game. How differently would we look at that now than we looked at it then when people really made fun of him? But like that was a pivotal moment in his life. And we pump these things up. Sports are important to people and they're particularly important to the people involved in them. I was going to say, you know, one of the most entertaining moments for me in the draft was when Kobe White at his presser was told that Cam Johnson got drafted number 11. And for his teammate, he was just like, man, that's crazy. And I love you. And that's uh, that's an incredible thing. And of course, with the Duke teammates, too, you see that they just have this amazing bond and people make fun of college basketball for the one and done stuff. But clearly friendships, deep, deep friendships are being formed on these teams. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to sound cynical, even though that's how it'll come off. But I do. The Adam Morrison, obviously, that was after a loss. I still wonder how we would see that. Although with Joel Joel Embiid, even with all his trolling of everyone else, people did feel some empathy or some or some sympathy for him when he uh, when he did cry after the Sixers lost on that buzzer buzzer beater by Kawhi. So you know what? I was gonna say we 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 were kind of really supportive of all the crying at the draft because it was in a positive way. I wonder mm-hmm. how it would be, how it would be if it was negative. But with Joel Embiid. It was it was pretty positive and supportive of him. So hey, that maybe maybe we do get some warm and fuzzies no matter what. So uh, the next entertainment value, the Kentucky trio of PJ Washington, Tyler Hero, and Keldon Johnson. My goodness, whatever you want to call it, I, I'm old, so it's going to sound horrible no matter how I put it. But swag, drip, whatever the term is, <laughs> man, they were just lighting it up. There was there any comparison to what they to to what they brought to the table in terms of the fashion. I mean, I know Bull Bull, he had a kind of a spider-looking suit, but is there anyone else that stuck out to you? Uh, no, the Bull Bull suit was the one that I was going to mention off the top, but I thought uh, in terms of like, you know, there are some players that went with like a more traditional suit, and I'm always open to that because, you know, if you look back, you know, if you go too aggressive and then you look back later, you end up looking kind of foolish. But if you play a traditional, normally you look okay at the end of it. But I thought, you know, just with the multicolored jackets, particularly Tyler Hero out there with the gold chain instead of the tie and that like, I don't know even what you'd call it, like that blue floral pattern that he was wearing. I thought the Kentucky players were definitely on top of it. I did love Zion and the all white with the cross on his uh, on his uh, pocket there. Um, but I thought, you know, as usual, there was a, a few hits, a few misses that uh, a few years from now we'll look back on. I can't think of anyone who looked worse than Bobo, though. That's for sure. Do you remember the first episode, I believe, ever of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when Will, when, uh, Will Smith, he looked like it looked like a floral design almost that he was wearing. I, I actually put pictures side by side. That was I was very proud of that tweet. Rarely am I mm. proud of tweets, but I but I put that compared to Tyler Hero's outfit. It was it was very comparable. I haven't seen anything like that since Fresh Prince. But I think that surprised someone with some with Tyler Hero. But he's actually been dressing pretty flashy for uh, his whole life, or at least since he got to Kentucky. Let's see Maria Taylor. She she was or I'm sorry let, let me uh, throw it back to you uh, what, what what's another 
factor you found entertaining about the draft? Uh, to me, I really loved the just the trades. This seemed like a this to me was like maybe the least predictable draft of all time, and I was just like constantly surprised not only by the trades but also by like the players that were selected. Normally, there's some reaches, like I always use Thon Maker as an example, but like there were some just incredible reaches I felt like in this draft, and I was more entertained than normal by the actual process of the draft. Sometimes it feels like oh, okay, you know, you pretty much know who the top 20 players are going to be taken in what order. Maybe it shakes up a little bit, but there were some absolute reaches, some absolute tumbles that I didn't expect. And so in that in that sense, I really think that the draft itself was more entertaining than it has been in previous years. Well, combining what you just said with uh, the fashion aspect of the question before, there were 11 different picks moved just on draft night. And... I mean, they were all wearing hats that, like, they're not even going to play for those teams. Do you think we need to make a change in the uh, in how they wear the hats? Or is there really just nothing you can do about that? I think absolutely the NBA needs to look at the offseason schedule and decide what they're going to do and in what order. Because it's pretty ridiculous to have a press conference with a player where he's talking about the team that he's not going to play for. And he can't <laughs> answer questions about the team that he is going to play for, even though everyone in the room knows exactly what's going to happen. It's just silly to put that through that. So either take the media aspect out of it and just do the draft, which the NBA doesn't want because they want to be covered robustly, or you change around the schedule and you make it so that you know the free agency happens first and the draft happens second. People have proposed that. There's a lot of different ways that you can tackle it, or you can just be more realistic and say that like, hey, trades are completed, and you know we're going to trust that our teams we're allowing them to do business at this time of the year, and we'll trust that they'll follow through on their word, and we're not going to end up in a sillier situation. But what could be sillier than having six guys wearing the wrong hats answering questions that they that are of no relevance to them. Yeah, no kidding. I remember I heard Jalen Rose talk about how I think he had like different different kinds of suits, different colors, and he was like trying to uh, wear whatever team he thought would draft him. I think he ended up getting it wrong, so we had to change real quick. I don't know. But um, all right, so we got Maria Taylor. I thought Maria Taylor uh, almost stole the show. She was amazing with the way she connected to the players. I think that at least some of the emotion – you got to give her at least a little bit of credit for that because they felt comfortable enough for her. And she was wearing those uh, fluorescent green shoes, which Jay Billis gave her crap for, and she gave it back even harder to him. So good for her. And, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought she was fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And it's actually a much harder job than people give it credit for. I won't call out anyone by name, but, like, in previous years, not only at the NBA draft but at the NFL draft, the reporter who's in that kind of role – will often just say, like, how does it feel? And what is a player going to say to the question of how does it feel? It feels great. What do you think it feels like? You know, like, and you don't really have words for those in that situation because you're encountering this thing that you'll never, that has never happened to you before and will never happen again. And so asking questions other than just how does this feel or how does it feel to be the number one overall pick, some variety of that really opens the players up. And you saw it. I mean, I think she made Zion cry. I think he was on the verge of it anyway, but, like, I think she made Zion cry and getting genuine emotion out of those players is a responsibility of a reporter and it's one that she took seriously and it got great results and i hope that you know she moves on to you know there are let's just say there are upcoming opportunities in the in the nba world for espn and i hope she gets some absolutely so you got anything else in terms of the entertainment value or i could even ask you um, no go ahead um all right best best names in the draft like the best person's names like who has the best sounding name give me a give me a top three of yeah um 
best, best uh, yeah, I guess best sounding names. <laughs> I would say to me the one that really stands out is I really love Rui Hachimura, and I wrote about him at Gonzaga. And my favorite thing about him is that um, because you know he's Japanese, he he can't really say his name very well, Rui, uh, and so he calls himself Louis and Lewis, and he's had all these nicknames that he's given himself, and his teammates at Gonzaga called him Louis, and so I just think it's funny that a guy gave himself his own nickname because his first name is kind of uncomfortable for him to say. Maybe I got too used to saying his name all year because he he didn't make my top three. My my number one, obviously, when you have a guy whose name's Zion. He's, sure. he's number one. Then um, I have actually the guy who might be my favorite Wizards pick of the draft, Admiral Schofield. I just yeah. love the name Admiral. And then I have my number three, Bull Bull. Interesting fact about uh, Rui Hachimura. I think when the Wizards announced they picked him, um, that was it was either the most, I, I guess, just on the whole, whether it be responded to, like, retweet, whatever. That was the that was the biggest tweet they've ever had from that account. So I don't. I mean, obviously, that says a ton about Rui. Unfortunately, as a Wizards fan, I think it says just as much about how kind of irrelevant they've been. But that's that's my own depression mm-hmm. that I have to deal with. With you got to throw Ja in there too as a name. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ja Morant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, again, he's another one I, we, I probably got too used to saying because mm-hmm. that is an interesting name. It's fascinating how some of these guys, like the top guys, they have names which, just in all of sports or really society, it doesn't seem like I just have like. Is there another LeBron anywhere? It's interesting. And kind of uh, going off that, like, uh, I couldn't – maybe I missed some, but Cam uh, Cameron, there really haven't been many in the NBA. I actually looked it up. There's been Cameron Barristow a couple years ago. Uh, currently, there's Cameron Reynolds who played a little bit, uh, I believe, for uh, maybe Chicago. And Cameron Payne, obviously. Um, those have been recent. And then we have immediately back-to-back Cam selections in Reddish and Johnson, both we got Tobacco Road cams back to back, so there's a uh, the cam takeover there. There you go. And lastly, I'll say just an entertainment value for me in terms of just this player, this prospect is visiting with a team. This team has blank measurables. This team, uh, this this person, they ran or jumped a certain whatever on the combine drills and the team workouts. I just find it hilarious because it's all so meaningless. I mean, basically, I refer to that stuff as the Underwear Olympics. I mean, <laughs> these teams, I know the scout. I have heard from the scouts. I mean, they say openly, like, they watch games and they judge them from there. When they see the players and they have them in for a workout, it's more to kind of see them mentally. It's what it's – I mean, it's just – it's human nature. We can't treat this as, like, the MLB with the money ball technique. So I think you watch them play basketball and you evaluate them there – and I just think it's funny when, like, a Rui Hachimura, the Wizards never had him in. They never even spoke to him. And that's not the only guy that uh, occurred like that in the draft. But you have a guy like Brandon Clark who dropped to 21. And supposedly it's because he he, is re- he doesn't have a big reach or something. Like, I don't know. That's just... And he's old. Yeah, I mean, who cares? Like, the guy... <laughs> I value um, motor, high motor so much. And he's just a freak athlete. I mean, the, he's just – he's not going to fail. It's not a matter if he's going to be a star. He's just – guys like that, they, they don't fail. So I don't care what their measurements are. And I, I just find it interesting how big a deal everyone makes the pre-draft workouts and all that stuff. 
Yeah, if you're a good team, then part of it is you're playing, you're doing a little gamesmanship. And I'm not suggesting that the Wizards are a good team by any means or no, a well-run organization. But, you know, part of it is you trust your scouting staff. You've got, you know, most teams have a dozen guys, you know, that are scouts, half dozen to a dozen guys that are scouts on the road all the time. And are you really going to learn anything in an open gym with one guy shooting around the world, basically three-pointers and running through some drills than you did uh, in them in live action? And so I don't I don't think it's irresponsible to draft a guy that you didn't bring in for a pre-draft workout. Sometimes it's just you don't want to tip your hand that this is the guy that you're looking at. Okay, so we saw perimeter shooting had a big value in the draft. I mean, we saw, like, Cameron Johnson, as I mentioned. He went a lot higher than expected. It was surprising, especially with his age, and he's had health issues. Perimeter shooting was valued. Plotting bigs with uh, a little bit slower feet, they were not. Despite the type of impact we saw possible from Nikola Jokic, but Nikola Jokic is not a common player. So those were two major factors there. In terms of value picks... Um, that you thought teams got great value or just steals in, in any way. Who are some guys that uh, you thought teams, it's just, you were really impressed with uh, their selections? Uh, I would say in terms of, uh, do you want to do t- in terms of teams or in terms of players first? Like which players or which teams? Well, I, I would say just, um, well, let, we could even do a combination in terms of the sure. value of the player with the team. I mean, some guys, yeah, yeah. you might say they, they might have been picked too early, but that's a perfect fit with the team. So we can yeah. kind of do it both ways if you want. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, I was going to joke at the first that, you know, the, the highest value pick uh, and the best value pick was getting Zion Williamson at number one. Like, that's how good he is. But, you know, still it's still a good value to use the number one overall pick on him just because a player like him does not ever really come around there wasn't there hasn't been a player like him and there probably won't be for a long while um the other players that stood out to me probably Jarrett Culver at six you know it's hard to say that a guy at six is a high value pick but I thought he was probably the third best prospect in the draft and to be able to get him at number six I think was huge and I think he really fits in well at Minnesota and then the other really obvious one I think is and we keep coming back to Tobacco Road but uh, getting Nas Little at 25 I mean that's a guy who has top five talent without a doubt and I think he was um, I don't want to say misused at North Carolina but certainly didn't have every opportunity to live up to his potential and I think he's one of those classic guys who will improve in the NBA he'll look better on an NBA court than he would have had he even stayed another year at North Carolina and so I think that to me was the highest like value in terms of like here's the selection other than of course if Bull Bull turns out to be a healthy player with a good head on his shoulders then you know getting him in the second round will look like the biggest deal of the draft for decades to come because he's you just don't see guys who are 7-2 true 7-2 without shoes on with a huge wingspan shot blocking capabilities and the ability to shoot the three if he holds up I mean there's no question he'll be the best pick in this draft Best value pick. All right, so I got, I mean, this is still early, but I I just think Kobe White at seven, I think he's going to own Chicago really quickly in terms of he's just going to be a fan favorite. So even though I put that hat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, He's just, him and Zion are just kind of, they bubble with personality and not just personality, but just positive energy. And I think that really does, obviously that you can't measure that. But it really affects everything around them. And I think Kobe White is just great for that team. They have defensive issues, and that is not exactly his strength. But if he can really uh, work on that, um, I mean, 
practicing maybe with Chris Dunn. That could help because Chris Dunn struggles with his offense a bit, but defensively he really locks down. So if Kobe can kind of gain some of that uh, defensive energy and intelligence from Dunn, that, that could be a great pick. And and then uh, going down, Chumu Kiki, I think, I mean, he's kind of like, uh, shoot, who, who's the guy on the uh, the Nets from Michigan I, I, that I uh, like? Let me, let me check right. He, he's my Karis LeVert because Karis mm. LeVert, he came out of Michigan and he had health issues. <laughs> also but, hurt, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's just there's certain guys which it's beyond stats. You can just tell they have such a love and enthusiasm for the game. If their health holds up, there's, I mean, Okiki's so – he's – He's not the most athletic, but he just he's so intelligent, and I just refuse to believe he won't be a perfect fit in any locker room and help the team way beyond stats. So it was actually surprising how early he got picked. I thought he was going to be a steal. Um, he was actually the one player I sent you a direct message on Twitter. Well, how would you feel if, like, I compared him to uh, Trevor Ariza? Um, not exactly. There's just certain aspects. Where would you draft Trevor Ariza in this draft? And you you had a, a little lower than I than I had, but actually I had it. I said about right where the magic took him. So I think that was a very good pick. I think that uh, let's see. I mean Clark. I mentioned Grant Williams. He's that typical Celtics guy. They they love like um, semi semi Ojale, like uh, not them, but a guy like. Um, Swanigan, he's he's that type of player where he might not light up the stat sheet, but he's going to bring energy. The strength is just undeniable, so I think he could be a good pick. Cabin Jelly, I think that could have great value on the offensive end. We'll see how it works out on defense. I love how the Warriors, I'm not even saying value, they might have literally just drafted Nick Young part two in Jordan Poole. He might be the most confident player in the draft, and I love that. No matter, no matter how he turns out, He's going to be interesting to watch because he definitely believes in himself. Mm-hmm. Um, other guys, he Nick, clashed with his coach a lot too. Yep. Yep. At Michigan. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Nick Young, Swaggy. I mean, his last name starts with the P, so there's Swaggy P, the sequel. Nick Nick Claxton ha- has talent. Same thing with Kevin Porter Jr. Those are two guys that they're definitely worth taking risks on. Um, later on in the draft, I would say Pascal. Again, I mentioned Schofield. Uh, Jalen Noel, I thought was great value. Um, going further down, I think the Spurs might have actually hit the jackpot right there with Quindari Weatherspoon. Love him. Uh, further down, Justin Wright Foreman. I went to Towson and I saw Justin Wright Foreman just beat up on my Tigers over and hmm. over and over. That guy, he's a microwave. He can just come in right, come right in and get buckets. So I love that. And Maybe maybe it's just a DMV bias, uh, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. But I actually do like after the draft was over, the Wizards picked up Justin Robinson from Virginia Tech. And they do have Sadoransky as a, I believe, restricted free agent after this next year. But with Wall coming back, it'll be interesting. So it's good to have some point guard help there. And I really like Justin Robinson. So those, I feel, were some value picks. Uh, how about on the reverse end? What did you – did you – not necessarily hate because you never know how it's going to go. What 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 made, what made you have questions? Yeah, hate is definitely a strong word. Uh, but there were a few. You know, I didn't think that you. I didn't think. I don't think that DeAndre Hunter is the kind of player that you need to. Uh, 
trade up for. I think in most drafts he wasn't a he's not a top five talent, and I think that there was a decent chance that he would have been there uh, at eight if they hadn't moved at all. And so I'm not in love with that move for the Hawks. I do think that he's a good fit for them. I think they got better value getting Cam Reddish at ten, and I'm sure as a Duke guy you'll have uh, some agreement with me there. Um, I thought you know Cam Johnson again. I think he's a great player, and I think he has potential to be an NBA, you know, let's say sixth man or so. But that's, you know, a little bit low of a value for somebody that you're going up to at 11. Uh, and I didn't really like the way that that trade worked out for them in do general. Rise, do you realize he's actually older than Devin Booker? It's just crazy. Yeah, he's 23, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's just uh, – it's it kind of boggles the mind that you take a guy that you probably could have gotten, if not late in the first round, early in the second round, and done a different kind of trade. And you, he's not really a position of need for your team either. I don't really understand in general uh, why you take him there. Those were like some of the head-scratching ones. And then um, I'm just not a big fan of uh, Luka Samanic. Uh I've seen him play a couple of times, and he's just soft. I don't think he's a first-round pick at all, and I think it's going to be a while before he ever ends up being a good starter. I mean, if you if you want, if you're an international player, the Spurs are where you want to be, and I trust their development abilities. But I just I've seen him play too many times, and I've seen him back down from challenges too many times. He doesn't me as a guy who's worth a top 20 pick in the draft i wouldn't have taken him in the first round at all okay i'm not even going to pretend to know about the uh a lot of the overseas guys um i've so. seen him play at a couple like basketball without borders events and that gave me you know you sometimes you see a guy play at a live event one time and you go down a deep film rabbit hole just pulling up whatever youtube full games you can find and i just he, he to me is not worth a not worth a first round pick certainly not worth a top 20 pick what do you feel about the Cavs taking Garland and put and obviously they're going to put him next to um next to uh Colin Sexton? How do you feel that's going to work? I don't think that that marriage is going to work out long term, but I'm not sure. I'm not convinced that the Cavs are convinced that Colin Sexton is a long term option for him for them. I really like Colin Sexton as a player. He's not a true point guard, and maybe you think you're going to move him off guard, like off to the two, and you put Darius Garland, who is kind of a true point guard into the top slot, or maybe you just have them duke it out. They're both going to be on favorable rookie contracts, and you see which guy develops because there is not an abundance of point guards, really strong point guards in the NBA. So maybe from that perspective, it makes sense. I think for the next few years, it's going to cause some tension on a team that's already kind of prime for it, and I'm not understanding why you would want to do that. But I think the value is there for Darius Garland number five. I think he was a guy we would have been talking about as – do you take him or do you take Ja if he had maintained his health throughout the season? You look at how good Vanderbilt was with him and then how shitty they were without him. Hopefully I can swear on your podcast. Uh, and you can see the kind of value that he brings to a team. Yeah, I mean, I kind of – he's gotten some Kyrie comparisons with his handle. I, uh, early on, I was, I was kind of, as a joke, combining him with, um, with Lillard. I called him Darian Garlard. And, <laughs> I mean, I just think he does have that ability, but – I mean, they're both 6'2", so it's just – that's really odd. I don't know – who who was um on the Rockets? Who did Kyle Lowry split time at point guard with early in his career? I'm trying to remember. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll look that up as I talk, but I don't know. I just think it's, re- it's risky to try to repeat what the Blazers are doing with McCollum and Lillard because that just doesn't happen. I mean, later on – um, I mean, I, I already have a stat. It's, it's really interesting how when your top two scores, if they're both under 6'6", six, six, 
There's only been one team in the last 40 years that's even reached the NBA Finals with um, with their top two scores below six six. Actually, mm-hmm. well, one team, two two times, three times. Do you actually do you know what that team is? No. That was the Detroit Pistons from uh, mm. 88 to 90, um, and 89 and 90. I remember it was uh, Dumars and Thomas. 88, I think it was Adrian Dantley and Thomas. Besides that, not once. Not once. So I don't know. I mean, it's a risky maneuver because both of those guys, while technically they're point guards, they're scoring point guards. So I don't know how I don't know how that's going to work out. I mean, you would think that's going to be your top two scores if they stay on the team. I mean, obviously Kevin Love can still score, but I don't know. That's an that's an odd fit. And not this, a believer in Tristan Thompson's golden years coming up. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, and the Wizards, I think they just tried to not screw up because that that usually they just do screw up. So they took the most average player, and I think Hachimura, he's kind of one of those guys. That, like, I don't think he'll fail, but it's just a guy who, I I don't know. I, I mean, I don't know. If, at number nine, I just there's a lot of guys who they could take him before, and with all the trades, I just find it hard to believe they couldn't find somebody who would like to trade up so they could at least get trade down and get the same guy. I don't know. It's interesting. All right. I so- really like Rui as a, as a player. And I think he's going to, I think he's going to pan out. I know some people were down on him and I do think that there's going to be a bit of like a language barrier for him. He still doesn't speak fantastic English and a bit of like a cultural barrier for him as he moves into the NBA. But I think two or three years from now, he'll really develop into a pretty good player. He was really committed at Gonzaga in a way that, a lot of American players don't have to be. He came in speaking basically no English and still, you know, maintained a solid GPA, lived away from his family, didn't really get to talk to them. Like, I think he's got a lot of heart that he doesn't get a lot of credit for. Um, and I think he'll I think he'll make something of himself. And, you know, at number nine, if you end up with a guy who's like a solid starter, that's actually not bad value for your pick. I mean, it all depends what you consider panning out. I mean, if he, if he becomes like a Derek Favors, is that panning out to you? Yeah. Okay, then yeah. Then it, I would say if he becomes that. A solid starter? Yeah. Yeah, I just think it was more they didn't want to screw up, whereas like I would have much better. And they don't have a GM. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. So <laughs> um, the, uh, the Duke guys. Let's start mm-hmm. out Zion. I mean, Zion, there's really – I went way deep into the deep end on the scouting reports. So in terms of his playing ability, there's really everything's been set. So what I find fascinating with Zion is his personality. I mean, I've never seen anybody who literally said everything he says is like if you could if it was like a Hollywood script, that would be the exact thing you would want that player to say as just like a feel-good type of movie. I mean, everything. Literally, even yesterday I read something like where he he was talking about how he just looked out the window when he was in New Orleans. He's like, you know what? This is home. And uh, with trying to remember, I heard an interview with him saying that uh, the question he wanted to ask when he was going to go to the USA basketball tryouts was what – it was Amin Al-Hassan who uh, was talking about this. He said, Zion, more than anything, wants to know what players did with their off time, like on a Sunday. And I just found that it's like, that is not a normal thing. Like, 
most of these guys are wondering like where they can party. I'm not saying all of them. I'm not trying to generalize, but like Zion, everything he says is just so perfect. So I'm wondering like some of these guys in college, they're just they they are by the book. Everything is just they don't want to make a scene in any way. They're just kind of trying to kind of be the good soldier. Even like anybody remembers well, this will date me. Anybody remember Shaq at LSU? He was very quiet, never said anything. Then he went to the NBA and everything changed. Um, so hmm. I'm not saying it all oh, it's fake, but I'm wondering how Zion's going to be when his personality, when he feels comfortable more with his personality, or is this just how he is? Because, I mean, Derek Rose and Kevin Durant, they were always the really quiet, thoughtful, humble, classy guys. Everyone loved him. And then it turned out once Derrick Rose started talking, he I mean, there is no bigger fan of Derrick Rose than Derrick Rose. And I'm not saying he shouldn't be. But my goodness, I mean, once he started talking, he basically thought of he thought he was the second coming. And there are plenty of quotes to prove that. I mean, and Durant, while many things kinda caused I don't want to say his change, but just the way he um his personality has differed a bit from when he first came in. It's just fascinating. So how how do you feel about Zion's personality? Well, obviously, we're not trying to judge, but just in the way he comes off, it's almost like it's so perfect. It makes you wonder. I hope he's just he's still comfortable being himself a year from now. Yeah, I do think he's a genuinely nice guy. And I think a lot of the, you know, I think one of two things happens when guys turn from, you know, being adored by fans to being hated. One is that they you know, switch teams and they become successful with the second team. That's the Kevin Durant story. We still haven't gotten over this, like, belief as fans that we own the players or that they should have some sort of undying loyalty. So, you know, like six years from now, if Zion is going to turn down the Supermax possibility with the Pelicans, if it turns out that New Orleans is not where he wants to spend the better part of, you know, his 15-year NBA career— are people going to turn on him? Are they going to say he's a traitor? Does he go join a super team with R.J. Barrett or whoever, right? So that's the thing that normally happens. Or two, uh, the fame becomes something that jades you. And I think that's a pretty reasonable response to the way that people become famous in America. I write a lot about the fame, you know, about the cost of fame. And I think it's something that most people are not prepared for. I say all the time to my friends who are not sports fans, imagine if when you were 18 – uh, someone gave you 500,000 followers on social media and gave you $100 million, right? So Zion is even more than that, right? He's going to make $200 million probably over the next five years, and he's got millions of followers on social media, and it's only going to grow from here. If I had had that stuff at 18, I would have been the biggest asshole that has ever lived in the entire history of the planet. There's no chance I come out of that humble and a nice guy and an upright citizen. I'm all about me. And so do you, as a person like Zion, who's really a genuine person and who really takes a lot of joy in life and the opportunities that have been given to him, do you hold on to that in spite of all the barriers that come against you, in spite of all the tension and the real friendships that you have to form and you, the people you have to feel out as being fake or real all the time? You are constantly having to look over your shoulder, not knowing if you can date someone or if they're using you. Like These are things like, does it turn you into a cynic or do you find a way to still be yourself by surrounding yourself with people that you love and trust and care about. I think that's a challenge for any guy in a position like him. And so we'll just have to see what happens to him. But I'm rooting for him and hoping that, you know, he doesn't become jaded in the NBA because I do like him the way that he is. And I think he's a pretty good guy. 
Yeah, I think with the Pelicans, that was really well said. With the Pelicans' young roster, I think one thing that's going to be interesting to see is how Zion is when he has to really get on teammates, when he has to actually lay into them, because it's just always such positive energy. And, I mean, like it or not, if you want to be a leader, you have to – you have to lay into guys sometimes. I mean, that's something I, I've i read that uh, Nicole Jokic, he did have trouble because he's such like a, a laid-back kind of just nice guy. Everyone's great. And now he's finally starting to develop that, like, you you have to be better as teammates. And that that's – it's not – you can't think of that and feel bad about it. That's what you have to do as a leader. So I was talking to one person who said they should just – Go all young, develop, and trade Drew Holiday. See what you can get. I'm like, no, no, no way. Drew Holiday is Drew Drew's Holiday. The glue. No. Oh, I mean, forget how he's one of the not only one of, one of the I have called him the most underrated point guard in the NBA for a couple of years. And besides that, off the court or on the court, I mean, he's one of the most respected players. You that team, you look at that team. They need him. They need his leadership. Without him, they're the Suns. Oh, that's that's a very interesting comparison. Um, Just yeah. a young team with no rudder, you know, like tons of talent and no rudder. That's that's what you end up as. And like Zion, I'm sure he's a you know a great person, and teammates love playing with him. And he, you know, probably at this stage leads by example more than anything else. Like all reports from Duke, that he practices incredibly hard, and that he challenges people when they're not practicing as hard as he is. He holds people to a standard that he gets held to. But like. It, you become the Suns if everybody on your team is under 22 and there's not a great organization behind you, which like, you know, the Pelicans, I think they're a better organization than people get them credit for, but they're not one of the top 10 teams in the NBA in terms of how they run practices, in terms of how they're managed. So I think you have to look at that and say you need somebody like Drew Holiday on that team who's a professional, like you said, a consummate professional in every kind of way. Okay, R.J. Barrett and anybody, I mean, in terms of Zion's fit, I mean – he would have fit with any team, but yeah. I mean, it's perfect. I, again, I went deep into him. If you want to hear about his basketball ability, uh, the, check the last podcast I did with Mike Ribbonoff of the Stepien. We went, we totally nerded out. RJ Barrett, I think he was used horribly in Duke's offense. He was the initiator. Trey Jones was not the point guard. I think he's going to get much more chance to play off ball. The thing I worry about with the Knicks is the fact that they have right now it's Dennis Smith Jr. as their point guard, who is a score first point guard. So it makes me wonder. I really would love to see the Knicks get more of a pass first point guard so RJ can play off ball. Although I do think he can play on ball. Like he can be like a Jalen Rose type. But I do think off ball, you can see that it's still more natural as he develops more on ball capability and playmaking. I think his playmaking was very underrated. But in terms of just a guy who is ready right now to embrace the spotlight at Madison Square Garden, one thing that R.J. Barrett does not lack is confidence. He huh. is meant to be there right now, and I think the Duke situation wasn't quite the best fit for him with how he was used. I think if the Knicks don't nick it up, I mean, he's he's a, he's going to be a star. He's going to be a star. Maybe not Zion type. Maybe not, like, first-team NBA but this is a guy, he has weaknesses, but I think as he is used better and then can still develop, I really like the situation he could find himself in in New York as long as they surround him with uh, guys that fit. I was buying all the stock that people were selling on RJ. I think you put it great. I think he's a 
on a te- on a Duke team last year that had a shooter, I think that's a national championship team, and I think R.J. Barrett looks a lot better. I agree. Uh, the Knicks really need to put a good point guard with him, a Kyrie Irving, although I think it sounds like they've kind of fallen out of the sweepstakes for him. Um, you know, I, they need someone who can really be a playmaker alongside him, and they need someone who's a really good shooter. That was Duke's failing last year, and I think it's the thing that held R.J. back. He had to just do a little bit too much. He had to create too much. He even, you know, arguably was more aggressive, maybe to the team's detriment, but Zion didn't step up enough sometimes for Duke in those late games, especially in the NCAA tournament, and a lot of that fell to R.J., He's not afraid to put a team on his back, even in times when he wasn't successful. I remember I was uh, talking to him in the locker room after Duke lost uh, there in Washington, D.C., and you know he was saying he was upset, but he said, every time I'm going to want the ball, and Knicks fans are going to love that about him. Yeah, and I, I think it was more that Duke's offense was just – it just it wasn't really – it was the most obvious offense in the history of the world. I mean, if you're going to clear out for somebody and the defense is sinking in because there's no shooters – at least create some action for him. So I think the fact that he just had to do it ISO, yeah. I mean, it forced him to have that tunnel vision. It's not the, that's just who he is. And, I mean, if you look at his stats out of the pick and roll, which I mentioned last episode, I mean, guys just missed every time. So eventually it's, it's tough to gain that trust. Um, We've had I, this discussion before, but that was the thing, you know, like Cam Reddish, the fact that he didn't step up is the reason why he wasn't a top three pick, even though he's a top three talent. You know, he he should have been a better three-point shooter. He should have been more aggressive against the team's third or fourth best defender when he was out there all the time. He was the solution to the Duke team that just never quite materialized into the player that he could have been. Yeah, and I, and I think more um, creative offense would have helped as well. For sure. Um, so Mike Ribinoff, he brought up Javon Carter. Um, in the last episode, which I thought was very interesting when we were talking about Cam, who I talked about, he looks the part. And Javon Carter, he almost, it seems like he might have male pattern baldness. And when <laughs> people see that, they might judge his basketball ability a certain way just because of just how we innately think, even if it makes, even if we shouldn't. So in, in the way we judge him, or some of us might, Cam Reddish, he looks the part when he shoots. It looks like it should go in. When he moves, It's almost, I compared him uh, last episode. It's like Will Clark when he swung a baseball bat or Ken Griffey Jr. It was just the smoothest thing. It looked like it should go well. But the results just weren't there. So it's very interesting how so much has been made of his role at Duke. But now that he's going to Atlanta, like if his role – if he didn't have a big enough role at Duke, people are acting like now it's going to be better. Why is he going to have a, a bigger role in Atlanta? And it's just – I hope I hope he succeeds, but in a way, it just it makes me wonder because at a certain point, the results need to be there. I mean, the fact that he was he barely shot over fifty percent at the rim, him and Nazir Little, they were the only guys um, remotely near Lotto who just really weren't successful at the rim. I mean, when you're that close, there was just you you were searching for something he did well, and he, he tries. I just I I hope the the results start to show. I think he needs to become a film junkie. But what I I worry about is just why is he going to be? Why are people saying he's going to be better in a uh, in a small role in Atlanta compared to Duke, where he people said, oh, he wasn't good enough because the role it was an adjustment. And it's just it doesn't correlate to me. I think it's always a risk to say that someone who disappointed at college, in college is going to be better in the NBA. I think that's a kind of silly thing that people say. 
it really doesn't happen very often. I think when you're, if you're, if you're a big Cam Reddish fan, you probably would say that in a, in a, in a spacing situation like in the NBA where you have a wider lane, he's going to be able to create a little bit more. He's going to have more open looks. He's going to be able to, you know, knock down open three pointers in transition, which you really struggled with at Duke. I don't see it. I think that the problem with him was not the fact that the lane wasn't wide enough, but just that he wasn't willing to get into it. He just didn't drive. He didn't penetrate, which is a shame because he's got one of the best hesitation uh, drives that I've seen of a prospect. Like when he does that hezy pull up, he gets defenders off their feet nine times out of 10. And yet all he ever does is take one step forward and shoots a 19 footer instead of shoot, you know, getting into the lane and really going into contact. If he can change into the type of player who is willing to get into the lane and willing to absorb contact, then sure, he can become great. But how often does somebody change their habits to that degree once they get to the NBA? I'm kind of on an island where I've never really thought that he's going to be better in the NBA. I feel like, you know, I've talked to other NBA draft people and in the media and on teams, and they feel like he's a great value at 10. Um, I'd be happy to be proven wrong because he's a very nice guy and I think he's a really hard worker. I just don't see the fit. Uh, I don't see him really exploding to be a better player. He strikes me more of like an Andrew Wiggins type guy who doesn't ever quite live up to his potential. There was Bull Bull, Jonte Porter, and Brian Bowen. So some um, we thought would be picked a little higher. Some maybe you didn't. Um, with like Brian Bowen, who knows? But Brian Bowen, he came in, he came to college with a lot of hype. Then many know what happened there with the Louisville situation. Jonte Porter, I still saw him before the draft. Some had him going like even late lotto, and wasn't picked at all with the unfortunate injuries. Bull Bull with, I mean, a big who's had foot issues, who really struggles laterally, who. I have not heard this personally, but I mean, with guys who are in the know, there's stuff about him off the court that I don't have the right to say, but there is stuff that's swirling more than just random sources, and I, I do think that must have played a part, because I'm again, I'm not going to pretend like I know if it's true or not true. That's not my place. But yeah, you I mentioned did. the Bobo article that I wrote, and I mean, part of it, you know, I heard a lot of stuff that didn't go into that article because I couldn't verify it. And so to your point, you know, whether or not it's true, that was part of the consideration for NBA teams in passing on Bobo. I know I talked to, let me think back, I think three people who were in positions of authority in three different teams who said they would absolutely not draft Bowl under any circumstances, including in the second round. And you saw, of course, you know, how many teams he went 44, right? So, you know, 30 teams passed on him, 13 teams passed on him again, 14 because that pick was traded, right? So, yeah, I mean, this is the situation that you ended up with with him. It's not just his foot. People have questions about his commitment to basketball. That's the safest way to say uh, the concerns about NBA people. To me, uh, you can have concerns about almost anyone's commitment to basketball uh, because just not that many players pan out. But I see a guy who's 7'3", is an elite rim protector and has the three, maybe the second best three-point shooter in the draft behind Tyler Hero. And I say, yeah, you know, maybe he doesn't ever pan out quite to his full potential. But if we get seven years of him at his best, then that's a higher value than you can get for any than anybody else at 35, at least at the lowest. Okay, the last prospect I'll talk about who was drafted 
one of the more, if not most, intriguing guys is Matisse Thibel. And, I mean, because he played in the zone and he still got all the steals, he – I just worry about him. <laughs> like, I don't know. This – it's not as much him, which is still very interesting, as the 76ers. Because mm. the 76ers – The process history, is dead. I don't know. I mean, you if you want to know their draft history, 2000, since 2013, I mean, basically everyone either misses most, if not all, their rookie year or starts their career with promise and is just – falls off a cliff. So in 2013... Are you saying that Markel Fultz has fallen off a cliff? How dare you? I love him. As a DMV guy, man, I I was so happy for him at Washington to see him get picked number one. I I still have hopes for him, but that's just a really unfortunate situation. I think there's a future for for him in the NBA. It just depends on when he's going to... Yeah, when he's going to get out of his own head. Okay, so yeah, top 20 picks. 2013, starting out. Number six, Nerlens Noel. Had a couple years where it looked like he had promised, dropped off a cliff. I think he refused like a huge contract with Dallas, bet on himself, and then got injured. So that was unfortunate. And number 11, Michael Carter-Williams, rookie of the year, traded halfway through his second season, and pretty much has fallen off a cliff since. 2014, number three, Joel Embiid, missed two seasons, played 31 games, then was injured in his third season. Now he's become dominant. But, man, that's it's a, it's a risk to say – well, we had to wait till basically someone's fourth season to get production. Even, but obviously it's worth it. But still, that's that's a long time. Uh, Twelve. Uh, Dario Sarge spent first two seasons overseas. Um, showed production at times. Now, obviously, is not on the team. I think he's with uh, the Suns. 2015. Number three, Okafor. Jaleel Okafor. Strong rookie season uh, before his knee injury. Then struggled for playing time. Even when healthy after that. It's kind of fallen off a cliff. He has shown a chance of kind of coming back with the Pelicans. We'll see how that works out. But he did look pretty good at the end of last season. 2016, Ben Simmons missed rookie year. 2017, Markel Fultz. We know the history. 2018, Zaire Smith. He broke his foot. Then he ate a piece of chicken that gave him an allergy infection. He, he actually developed a hole in his esophagus. He missed most of his rookie year. It's one of the most – I don't think many people know about the whole story. Alex Schultz wrote a great story in GQ, um, Search for uh, Zaire Smith. I really liked him coming out. I was really high on him. He lost like 50 pounds. It was crazy with that allergy infection. So, yeah, he pretty much mostly missed his whole rookie year. So, Thibel, honestly, I just want him to play. I mean, so, so that was kind of, I don't know, the Sixers draft history, it, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Yeah, I I think that it has been a, let's say, what's the, I think there's been an accurate reassessment of draft strategy for the 76ers and maybe overall strategy for the Boston Celtics, uh, especially when you watched, uh, you know, Masai Ujiri, what he did with the Raptors, bring them around to an NBA championship this year. And I think this, like, stockpiling picks thing hasn't always panned out for teams in the way that they would hope for an on-court success. Obviously the 76ers came within a breath of going to the Eastern Conference Finals and, you know, had they or going to the NBA Finals and had they they probably could have beaten the Warriors if, you know, injuries happened in the same direction, but yeah, it's an interesting it's 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 an interesting strategy to build exclusively through high draft picks 
specifically because of how often they fail. I mean, that's my favorite thing to talk about on the NBA draft night is, and I think I tweeted something to this effect was just like every pick gets praised pretty much. And every guy is talked about in his best case scenario, but what percentage of NBA draft first round picks end up being consistent starters in the league? Probably 40%. I don't know the number off the top of my head, but it's not high. And it's interesting because you just never know situations like that. Somebody eats a piece of chicken and it you know, ends your team's draft strategy. Yeah, and also the 76ers, they seem to really like drafting defensive stalwarts who can't shoot. So hmm. who shoots for their team? I mean, they traded away, um, what's his name, to the Clippers, who is fantastic. Oh, shoot, how would I phrase it? Um, and it's just, I don't, I don't know what they're doing. I mean, they need shooting, yet they're not drafting shooters. So I'm not sure what's going on with them, but if nothing else, they can, they can be a pretty good defensive team. Uh, so yeah. I'll say that. Yeah, um, and who knows what the Eastern Conference is going to look like, so sure. Yeah, I mean, it's just fascinating, as you said, because do we think, I, I think a lot of people, they get more excited about potential than actually current success. So everyone is really riding the Pelicans bandwagon, or not necessarily bandwagon, just really excited about them. The Hawks, um, the uh, is uh, in somewhat the Mavs, the um, so, so some of these uh, other teams. Um, let's some of these other teams like uh, the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies, I do. The Grizzlies are getting really athletic with Morant, with Jaron Jackson, and with my guy Brandon Clark. Mm -hmm. you, just, you just never know. I mean, the Celtics, they got all those picks from the Nets. How many of them worked out? I mean, Jason Tatum's really the only one you could say they might have hit there. And, and I think I, he's I, only 15 years old. What kind of future he's going to have? <laughs> I know. He's like 12 years old. So, I mean, it's, it's just really interesting how some are more excited about future uh, potential than actually current success, which is why, like, hey, the, the Pelicans, they won the Lakers trade. I mean, are any of those players Anthony Davis? No. Like, so you can get a lot of guys who have potential, and yet you never know what's going to happen. They didn't look like world beaters with the Lakers. That's not at all saying they're not good, but they're not Anthony Davis. So no matter what, if you have a chance to get an elite player, you give up what you can. I mean, not. I think the La the Lakers having giving up the like, four years down the road still kind of swapping picks, that was a little much. But just in terms of the players and a couple first-rounders, I mean, to get Anthony Davis, you do what you have to do, especially with the LeBron window. Yeah, uh, the way I described that trade was it's almost impossible to win a trade in which you give away Anthony Davis, but as close as you can possibly come to that is what the Pelicans did. Yeah, I mean, they got they got a great haul, but I yeah. just don't see how anybody could say they won it when, they, when the other team gets Anthony Davis. Correct, uh, yeah. Uh, okay, so... The NBA Finals, um, so that, that uh, wraps up the draft talk. The NBA Finals, is it going to be remembered more, in, uh, do you think, for positives or what went wrong? I think this NBA Finals will be remembered more than anything as an NBA Finals that really changed the landscape of the league for the next few years. So the Clay Thompson injury the Kevin Durant injury. I know that happened during the Western Conference Finals, but the re-injury, obviously, during the Achilles, you know, he tearing his Achilles when he came back in Game 6 um, or Game 5. Now I'm forgetting. See, we're already forgetting what's happening. Um, and so, and then Kawhi Leonard, right? Like, does 
I think if you had put it, the odds of him resigning at the beginning of the season, you would have taken the NBA field over the Raptors, right? Wouldn't I would have. I would have said he's not going to be on the Raptors next year, regardless of what happens this year, unless they win an NBA championship. Now I'd say I'd take the Raptors over the field. I'd take the Raptors over any other team, all other teams combined, right? Um, and so I think that we'll remember this finals not so much for Kawhi winning and the you know amazing things that he did and for the way that Masai Ujiri built a team in kind of the opposite way that every other franchise has been building teams and finally won this championship. This may be the most respected GM in the NBA finally actually climbed to the top of the mountain. But the way in which it changed the NBA for years to come, like what is going to happen with Klay Thompson, what is going to happen with Kevin Durant, if he opts into that player option that he has for this coming year instead of signing in free agency elsewhere, then that significantly hampers what the Warriors are going to be able to do and whether or not they're going to be able to be a true like finals, a championship contender next year, or if they're going to go into some sort of rebuilding mode around Steph Curry again. And so I think that's what you're going to look back on with this finals. I think it was an entertaining series and I really liked, you know, a lot of the playoffs and a lot of what happened, but you're going to remember it as this one that changed the landscape in a couple of months from now after the free agency dust has settled. That's what we're going to think about. The fact that Kawhi Leonard and the Raptors are maybe going to be the favorite to repeat in the Eastern Conference with the way the West looks now and with the way the East looks now, I would take them as a as a huge favorite to be an NBA title contender again. Yeah, and I just with Kawhi. That- I just find it fascinating how even when you're talking about it, you're talking about what it means for the future. And that's something which I struggle with. And at least like on social media, and I know social media doesn't represent everything, but when I'm watching these games, I am really into the games. And all I see is people talking about what whatever is happening means for the future or just saying the game is rigged for whatever thing they believe. But, I, I mean, when I go through after it's over and think about the types of events that many are going to remember, it is kind of frustrating because I do think it was a really well – the Raptors, the, the, it was a really well-played series by them. And it's just there are some unfortunate events for the Warriors in terms of injuries. But it was a fascinating series. But when, when you think about it, I mean, there's going to be the Nick Nurse timeout. It's going to be the Warriors. They're better without Durant. Oh, wait, they're not better without Durant. (laughs) Durant should play. They shouldn't have played Durant. The Warriors minority owner pushing Kyle Lowry. I mean, it's just there's there was a lot of negative stuff, which I think is unfortunate, especially for someone like me who not for better or worse. I'm not saying somebody should watch how I do or not. But everyone says, hey, we can multitask. We can take the soap opera stuff and we can appreciate the game. I don't really see much analyzing the game except for whatever happened in the last possession. I mean, one very fascinating thing is I never heard from one person or saw from any writer, media, anything. OG Ananobi, he played 20 minutes a game for, I believe, 65 to 70 games for the Raptors. And he actually, he was hurt, but then he came back. He was healthy. They, but their, um, I guess it was uh, the chemistry was just going really well. But nobody even talked about how they didn't have him, and he was a major part of that team. So they were down a man, but nobody seemed to recognize that. All anybody was talking about was the Warriors missing guys. I mean, the the Cavs, they didn't, they were missing Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love in 2015. I don't think. Just stuff happens, and obviously a lot is unfortunate, but I just think there was a lot of interesting factors during the series, 
that I think could be talked about more. Like, I, I mean, for example, we haven't really seen much in terms of a team with one star and then a supporting cast. When you go back, you think like the Dirk Nowitzki 2000, what was it, 2010 team? Or was it 2010 or 11? 11, right? I guess. James? Yeah. yeah. Um, where J.J. Barea outplayed LeBron. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, there, there was that. There was the kind of starless Detroit Pistons team with uh, Chauncey and uh, Rip Hamilton and um, Rasheed Wallace. But usually you need at least two stars. So this is really fascinating how it was Kawhi, and then it's almost like Fred Van Vliet stepped up at times, and then other guys stepped up at times. The way Nick Nurse really, he blitzed the three-pointers. I mean, it was just fascinating. But I think we, exactly what you just said, it's all about moving forward. Whatever's happening, we're already thinking about the next play almost in terms of what's the next transaction that could happen. Everything that's happening currently, what does it mean in terms of the future? And I would like to selfishly just see whatever's happening on the court as a basketball nerd be – Celebrated or, or like given a little more attention, but again, that's just me. I'm not saying I'm right at all, but I'd like to see a little more even kind of coverage because I thought it was, even though it was five games, was, wait, six games. Yeah, I, I, I do think it was a very interesting series. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, there's tons of interesting basketball stuff that happened on the court, too. The way the Warriors were jamming up the pick-and-rolls, which had been a huge thing for the Raptors during the season. I mean, obviously, pick-and-roll basketball dominates the NBA right now, but the way Leonard responded to that and was able to work without picks was really fascinating to watch. But the thing that, to me, it always comes back to is most fans prefer the soap opera stuff to it because— understanding basketball is complicated players are moving really quickly you have to kind of slow the game down in order to understand it and i don't blame people who don't have time to like break down film in the course of their day-to-day lives but tracking personalities and players and rooting for drama off the court and stuff like that that's easy and it's kind of the soap opera way of american life it's not everything to me but i do recognize that that's part of the game to people and they want to also have a communal aspect of it that's why nba twitter is so much fun because people are roasting each other it's like a giant group chat of some kind and so i just kind of embrace all the aspects of it and try not to you know judge anything for it and there's certain sectors where you can follow just the just the basketball and you know there are coaches out there who tweet you know basketball breakdown and stuff like that who will tell you everything that's happening the nuance of the behind the scenes and there are scouting experts and stuff like that but i like just the general conversation of people who are watching games and joking and having fun in the same way that you would if you were sitting at a bar if you were you know watching it with a group of your friends you're not really saying like to your friend hey check out the way that they're defending the pick and roll you're saying you know like oh man wouldn't it be crazy if Kawhi leonard re-signed and the raptors actually ran this thing back I want to see a slow motion breakdown of the airspeed velocity of J.R. Smith throwing soup. That's what I want. Yeah, done. I want to know just what kind of soup it was. Wasn't it like tortilla? I thought it was a tortilla or something. Chicken tortilla? That was the rumor, but I didn't ever, I never saw that. <laughs> it was just a rumor. <laughs> I love that. It's a rumor. There's, there's no, <laughs> there's no official source that'll give that. It's always a kind of anyway. All right, so. It's just fascinating. A year ago, Brad Stevens, there was a poll done where he was not only voted the best coach of the game, but if I think there was something like if you could take a bunch of these, a bunch of players who were listed or Brad Stevens, he was picked above the players. 
And there was that. There was, oh, Kawhi's overrated anyway. The Raptors did DeRozan dirty. So in terms of looking back on that stuff, I mean, it's the same way Durant. The Warriors are better without Durant. It's fascinating to look back on that. Let's let's say Brad Stevens. Let's start out there. When you have that just one star, I think the coach can do a little more. I mean, unless it's a, when, it, when it's like a LeBron type of thing, I think it's LeBron's team, and that's the way the system's going to be run no matter what. But I do think it's fascinating when you when you have that one star. I think Nick Nurse he got a little, he got a lot of credit, and I think deserved the same way the Spurs. Well, obviously Duncan was a superstar, and Tony Parker's going to be a Hall of Famer, and. Ginobili was great and all that, but there wasn't like guys that like were otherworldly besides Duncan. So I think Pop Popovich got a lot of credit, and I think when it's not LeBron, because I think LeBron does kind of take it into his own hands. I think you can see how these coaches can really shine more, uh, and I'd I'd like seeing Nick Nurse get credit for that. Yeah, I agree totally, and I think you know. The, to me, the Brad Stevens thing is just like the classic overhyping and then reacting to the hype itself. Like the fan base built up this incredible hype and then they respond with this overrated thing in response to a hype that they built up themselves. You know, it's just this kind of cyclical nature that happens with it. I'd still take Brad Stevens over almost every other coach in the NBA uh, if I had my first choice. I don't think I'd take any coach over any player any good player you know equal caliber caliber player players are who who make the game not the coaches but you know if you are starting an nba franchise and you have your pick of coaches if you had a coaching draft let's say it that way in the nba where do you think brad stevens would go three at the lowest i don't even know i mean i guess I, like i don't know enough about the coaches like i don't pay enough attention during the regular season to mm. really figure that out. I mean, I know Pop, Popovich will always go one. And, Rightfully so. And I then, mean, you know, you think about like, all right, do you go Dan Tony? Do you think Luke Walton did a good job? You know, Brad Stevens, Quinn Snyder in Utah, right? Like Fizdale. I mean, it, it, it always just you know? depends what the talent they have. I mean, there's... Yeah, that's what uh, I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, there's systems they can set up. Like Mark Jackson, he I really... I didn't say Steve Kerr, which is an insult. Yeah, Mark Jackson got the Warriors <laughs> to play better defense, but they weren't passing enough. Steve Kerr, he makes a tweak, and all of a sudden they pass more than any other team in the yeah. NBA and sets up a system like that. But, Eric but, Bolster is the hottest young coach in the NBA, and then all of a sudden he doesn't have three of the best players in the NBA, and he's an average coach now. Yeah, I mean, it's just, at a certain point, it's just the players. That's why I don't mind... Um, I will say before we get to the free agency, the, um, the last part, uh, there's two kind of last subjects. I will say player empowerment, and that's why I don't mind the player empowerment because they're the ones doing everything. Like I think we, too many are just, in co- especially in college, when you with, with college fans compared to NBA fans and college media compared to NBA media, it's fascinating because it's two polar opposite types of, of attention and some of that does have to do with the fact that college the stars the star players are often one and done so you don't get to know them as well um so the coaches they're going to stay around longer but at the same time it's just when you think of a team you think of the coach with the nba you it's the players they run everything so i don't mind it how do you feel about the current really player empowerment age 
Yeah, I think that it's important. I think that the players are the reason that people watch the NBA games. You know, I think, you know, people make memes out of Nick Nurse uh, looking like he's just seen the end of a David Copperfield trick after every single thing. Right. Uh, but I think that ultimately it comes down to the product that's on the floor and the players and the personality that are on the floor. And so to me, that's what makes the biggest difference. And I am I'm all for players being empowered both financially and off the court as well to be spokespeople and to be leaders. And I think it's, you've seen a great change in that. And, you know, that's LeBron's contribution. That's arguably his biggest contribution to the game, not just his incredible success on the court, but the way that he has allowed players to control their own destiny by taking the heat of going to Miami, going back to Cleveland and now going to the Lakers. Like the reaction that he got when he went to the heat versus the reaction that he got when he went to the Lakers, that was because of the sacrifices that he made when he went out there. Okay, let's finish up. Last subject will be free agency. So, I mean, there's constant rumors swirling around. We saw uh, Horford, he, he actually declined a $30 million option. He's trying to sign for more. Harrison Barnes declined 25 So we are seeing guys, they know they can get paid, and you take what you can get because these owners, they'll, they'll trade players without a second thought. So in terms of where guys are going to go, like Kyrie, Durant, all that stuff, uh, even DeMarcus Cousins, Kemba Walker. You you have any feelings on what would be good fits right now? Uh, to me, I mean, if you start at the top, if, if I'm Kevin Durant, what I'd try to do is fill out the market and sign a max deal. I think he's still going to get a max deal, even though player teams know that he's not going to play during year one. He's going to take a full year to recover. I'd go and I'd partner with Kyrie Irving and go to the Nets or, you know, whatever it is that he wants to do. But I'd sign a max deal with a young, promising team and probably one that has a high, you know, potential for a good pick or they have a slot of picks, you know, coming up in the next couple of years um, where they can really rebuild around him because, you know, an Achilles injury does ultimately probably shorten your career by a year or two at the end of it. So I think you look at him, his window is shrinking and he's a guy who wants to be the leader of a championship team. I think people now recognize that what he's done at Golden State over the last couple of years has been the difference between them being a really good team and being the best team probably in NBA history. And I think he gets respect for that now. But I think he still wants to be the guy who is thought of as the true leader of an NBA team going to a championship. So, uh, you know, I'd love to see him and Kyrie together in Brooklyn, although I think like they're, I don't know how much of a step up. I think this will be sacrilege to some people, but I don't know how much of a step up Kyrie is over versus D'Angelo Russell in terms of like what you have to give up to get him. Um, and so I think like I would love to see him go to a position where he can win. Uh, I think Kawhi, the biggest thing that makes sense for him, if I were him, I'd do a one-on-one kind of uh, Kevin Durant deal with a player option in the second year and stay in Toronto. I think if you kind of hold off and you let the other chips play out first, and you kind of see where the best position is for you to be. Maybe you say, like, if the Lakers end up clearing that cap space uh, from the Anthony Davis trade and they can sign him to a max deal, he might be good. But if I'm Kawhi, I kind of like being the main guy on the team that I'm on. I know that my team is capable of winning an NBA championship against a really good Warriors team, but we'll be able to do it in an even better way, you know, potentially an even clearer path next year with the way the NBA is going to shake up in the offseason. I'd do a one-on-one and stay in Toronto. Okay, so who do you think the Lakers are more likely to go after, Kemba Walker or Jimmy Butler? 
I think they're more likely to get Jimmy Butler. I think Kemba Walker really wants to stay in Charlotte, and I think that Supermax is going to be super enticing to him. I don't think, you know, I don't really buy this, like, Boston oh, th- Celtics Their roster thing. is awful. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know who the Lakers are going to end up with. That's going to be a fascinating thing. I think he's a better fit for them for than uh, Jimmy Butler is. Like, if I'm the Lakers, he'd probably be my... I mean, obviously, they're not going to get Kevin Durant, I don't think. But and besides Kawhi Leonard, he'd be my top choice. I'd want, in terms of fit for the team, I'd want, I'd want Kemba Walker above just about anybody else. Yeah, I think Kemba Walker would be a great fit. And the last thing I'll say, I mean, with these Achilles injuries, with Cousins, with Wall, with Durant, man, Dominique Wilkins is the only one who's come back and proven the ability to play at the level he was at pre really Achilles, Achilles injury. I mean, you look across all sports. Either you overcompensate, injure, injure something else, you re-injure the Achilles, or you just, you're done. I mean, Kobe, his level of play was as good as anything. Then he, then he tore the Achilles, and he just was never the same. People say it was age, man. You just don't come back. I mean, Terrell Suggs, he he's probably the closest to Dominique Wilkins to uh, playing at his level, then, but he tore the other one. And he kept coming back good for him, but I don't know. There's nobody really with proof and I'm hoping with the the medical advancements as they are hopefully I'm looking for someone to prove me wrong with especially since more and more guys are tearing it and I mean Rudy Gay he's okay but he's not the Rudy Gay of old so we'll see but uh yeah I know you have to go so let's wrap it up there and I really appreciate you jumping on to kind of chat a little bit about this I do a lot of analysis great to just kind of talk about what's going on and why certain aspects are given a little more coverage than others and I understand it even if I don't necessarily agree with it that's fine we can all there's there's certain um, areas that we all, we can all go to to find what we want so I, I think it's great in certain ways as long as both aspects are covered the uh, the kind of the analysis and the soap opera stuff. So really appreciate you coming on, David. Is there any any stories that are coming out soon or anything you're working on? Uh, I like to keep the stories pretty close to the vest until they come out. But we've got, uh, yeah, I've got some pretty interesting things in the works. And uh, maybe we'll just te- tease it as saying there could be some interesting things for uh, listeners of your show coming up soon. Oh, fascinating. And, I, and lastly, I would like to uh, to just put myself out there and make a request because I don't think it's gotten enough attention. This will be the last thing. Chris Weber, his free throw percentage improved from 45% to 75% one year to the next and really never dipped below 70% the rest of his career, at least while he was in his prime. And Deandre Jordan, the same kind of thing happened where not to quite the extent of uh, Weber. Actually, I think it might've been close to it. And I think with big guys, a lot of them struggle with free throws. And while Jordan, you can actually see, he, he kind of put his legs closer, to his feet closer together. But a lot of it is just he he has this routine and creatures of habit, and he kind of asks questions to his teammates and does the same thing every time, goes and gets the ball. I, I just would find it fascinating, an article on, free, on, on the mental aspect of free throw shooting, especially for big men, and why they don't, actually seek advice from guys like Chris Webber and if it holds up DeAndre Jordan because I find that stuff fascinating I've never seen any article or interview with Chris Webber on him being asked he was a 45% shooter then was like 75% the rest of his career and I just think it's fascinating especially as a Duke fan who saw too many missed free throws this past year so that is my request my humble request and hopefully 
I've got Rick Perry's phone number and I've heard him go on several hundred rants about why, you know, people should turn to him to do underhanded big guys should turn to him to do underhanded free throws. I don't know about that, but I mean, <laughs> Dwight Howard. It, incru- said, it improves percentages. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, Dwight Howard, he said he shot like a really high percentage in practice. It's just, it's, it becomes, I think as mental as anything. For sure. So I would love to kind of read more about that in terms of the mental aspect. But I'll let you go now, David. Thank you so much. I'd love Thanks, to have you on again in the future. And yep. uh, um, your Twitter account? By David Gardner. B-Y David Gardner. Highly recommend everyone to visit that account for some good old times. And thanks so much for tuning in to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am Adam Comro. I'll be talking to everyone soon.